This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Bill Protzman. He's the founder and CEO at Musimorphic, a company on a mission to raise awareness of the power of music as self-care. He's the world's leading advocate and educator on the self-evident use of music for physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health, nonlinear thinking, and paradox. In this one, we dive deep, deep into the power of music its impact on consciousness, its power as a healing mechanism, how and way music saved Bill from his own personal struggles, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And with that, here is the music man himself, Bill Protzman. No one has sort of come from the world of music in the same way that you have. And, you know, this dates back all the way to three years old, if I'm correct, when you began taking piano lessons. Oh, my gosh. So, this is one of the few things that I remember clearly from, you know, being three years old. I don't know how many other people are remembering three years old, but I mean, can you think of anything that, that, that sticks with you from three? We see photos, right? But is there anything that's like in your heart from that? Unfortunately, the answer to this question is not a positive one. And I think for most people, you know, that very first memory you have is like something that's a little bit traumatic. Like I remember falling down a set of stairs. It's actually instructive because the memory was connected to something that got into your feeling center, right? It got deep into you. And I'm so sorry that that was a traumatic memory. I have some of those too. But if you're listening to this right now and you're getting that response that Adam has, it's like without judging that, you've learned something really important because when a memory gets into you that deeply... It's a tool. It's really useful. And you can mine that energy and use it. And I've had some of those, but the, the one that you're talking about at the piano was one of just starting at the left end of the piano on the two black notes and using left and right hand, going left, right on those two, then coming up to the next two and doing left, right, and next two and left, right, all the way to the top. That was the very first memory that I have of playing the piano at that age. And a little kid, right? But my mom was my teacher, and she made an entire career out of teaching little kids to do this thing called music, right? But the memory, it's in there, right? And I think it's in there because it connected my feeling center. But how did you develop the passion? I mean, I've got kids that are in music lessons. I've got two kids that are taking piano. They'll sit down for a lesson, but in between those lessons, they don't take to it naturally. It's like a, it's a bit of a push to get them to practice. Yep. That's the parent's job, right? We push. It came as a passion uh, when I discovered that other people were enjoying it, and that was fifth grade. So, it, imagine me from three years old until fifth grade, which is like a long time, right? It's an infinite amount mm-hmm. of life for a kid. Somebody was pushing me and forcing me to do it, and I was playing Bach and Beethoven. But when I found ragtime, everything unlocked for me. I learned to play this piece of rag, and I played it in a school assembly, and people were responding in a way that I had never experienced in piano parties. And so, I got really curious about why. And... You know, it was a long time from fifth grade until we had neuroscience and music therapy and research and stuff that I could really understand physiologically what was going on with people. But as a musician and a performer, you get that already without the research, you understand it and you can begin to use that on the stage. And I'm going to use the word manipulation because it's a good one to manipulate an audience to, to invite them to come on this journey with you through the music and to join you in the experience of what it's like to make this music happen and be a part of it as it does this emotional connectivity that people have to music. So, even as a music lover, 
And as a musician myself, I can't really explain what it is about music that makes me feel a certain way and what is actually happening in my body when I hear a song that I fall in love with. Can you explain that? Well, I can, but let me ask you and everybody who's listening a, a sort of a different question. Is it that important to explain it? I mean, I think maybe it helps to understand sure. what's going on because it's such a special feeling that I can't get from any other method of consumption, let's say. Yes. No, I, and I like your answer. And I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of poking the bear just a little bit here because we love to know why. Let's face it. You know, we're in the scientific age. We like to understand how these things work on us. And I can give you the framework for that. But the, the beauty of this is that the same music might feel one way to you and another way to me. And in our effort to understand why, we often get lost in why, like Adam can feel um, X from this music while Bill feels Y from the same music, right? And then everything gets in a tangle. <laughs> and, and that's okay. But here's the thing, and, and I'll answer your question. So, obviously, we hear the stuff, right? The sounds hit into our eardrums, just like I'm talking to you now. It's a very intimate way of, of touching a very vulnerable part of your anatomy, the eardrum. And those sounds are then interpreted by the brain, which runs it through its sort of pattern matching algorithms. And depending on the patterns that it has to evaluate those sounds, it triggers other parts of you. And you can go, oh, I like this, or oh, I don't like this, or whatever the thought response is, takes place up there based on the head brain's pattern matching ability. And that's a cultural thing. Like you grew up in China, you'd hear sounds a different way than people who grew up in Belgium. Cultural, that's how it works. But there's another thing that's happened. And way before your pattern matcher is engaged, the sounds in your ear have triggered uh, what we'll call the lizard brain or the crocodile brain. You know, the, the fundamental parts of us that are connected to fight, flight, freeze, feed, or mate. I'll use the poli polite word, the five Fs. And those five Fs are where we feel stuff, right? Those are where the feelings come in. And it's pretty unfiltered. You know, the sound to five F response is pretty direct. So the feelings that you get actually stem from that versus what your head brain says you ought to be feeling about them. And if you can tap into those basic feelings, that's like the start of being able to understand how music is really working for you, on you, in your particular situation, at that moment in time, to give you that feeling of deep love, for example, that comes from music. So you say, quote, the lost art of using music as a tool can change your scene for good, whatever that scene is. So two-part question here for you, Bill. One, what is society's current relationship to music? And two, why, in your opinion, do we not leverage or think of music as a tool for good? So the, the society's current opinion, it's, it varies by culture, I think, Adam. There are cultures in the world which are, I'll say, more indigenous, where music actually is a part of the day-to-day. -day. There are places in Africa, for example, where music accompanies all of the daily tasks that go from like waking up in the morning to washing to uh, having meals and cleaning up after meals. And there are even places in our world today where there's a musician who serves the village as a sort of musical historian, where all of the history of everyone in the village is contained in the songs that this musician is responsible for composing and developing, and then, of course, sharing. When people need the history, it's there. So, in those cultures, it's a very much different thing than it is here in the West, where we look at music as a consumer product, and we worry about whether or not AI is going to develop the next pop music, you know, stuff like that. And probably it will, because music is a consciousness tool, and it speaks to us at whatever level of consciousness we need as consumers. 
So if our level of consciousness is one that appreciates AI-generated melodies because it doesn't matter to us what they are and we just love them, that's a much different thing than a level of consciousness, let's say, that's engaged in composing music, actually putting pen to paper and making Pulitzer Prize-winning symphonies, right? So there's a whole variety in that range of consciousness that we as consumers in the West tend to look at as music first, it's entertainment. Whether it becomes a tool beyond that, that's the challenge that I have here you know, with Music Morphic and helping people to find that tool. So Music Morphic was launched in 2011, was it? 2011. Um, I got Music Care started first. And the field of Music Care is becoming, it's like everybody who makes Kleenex, it's becoming a, one of those words that isn't too specific anymore. And they're amazing. In fact, there's a, um, I'll give them a plug right here. Room 217 up in Canada is doing incredible work with music and caregivers. They use what they call music care, which is music therapy informed version of what I do. And that's awesome. There's a company in France that has an app. It's also called music care. So musimorphic is the evolution of that because care is too small, man. We have the opportunity for real change here. And just caring is really important. Intervention is important. You know, we don't want to feel trauma. But being able to use those feelings for something important to change the world, that's musimorphic. I just want to ask you personally, Bill, based on your own experience, I know you've struggled personally with depression. You found music. This puts you on a new path. If you're comfortable, would love you to say more about your experience with music as that healing mechanism. I can give you the exact date and time, man. It was the Friday before what we call Labor Day here in America. It's a three-day holiday weekend. And I was feeling pretty low. Second divorce, second bankruptcy. I just spent all that I had protecting one of my kids from sexual abuse by their stepfather. Uh, that kid is now launched off to college. All the cats had died. You know, I was alone and very depressed. And I have been chronically depressed all of my life. And that evening, feeling suicidal. And I knew enough about music and how it works on us at that point to be able to intervene and say, okay, I don't want to call my therapist. I don't want to take any more antidepressants. I don't want to like do anything here, but I'm going to give this a chance. And I put on a piece of music that I love and the headphones and sat in the chair and I made myself sit there and just be with that music, put it on repeat. It's like six and a half minutes long. So I just put it on repeat. And, um, Things got pretty bleak. It was sunset. You know, I was watching the sunset out the windows, and it was fully dark. It didn't turn on any lights. And I just stayed with the music, and um, huge grief came to me, man. I, I, I wept for a long time. I mean, I, I cried myself to sleep. I was literally in the chair when I woke up from whatever thing I'd been in. Music still playing. Took off the headphones and dragged myself into bed. And in the morning when I woke up, there were words in my head which is not unusual. There's always, you know, something going on up there. The, the second brain is thinking. And I realized the words were lyrics. And I started writing them down. And then they feel, felt complete at some point. I said, well, this is great. So now what? And, and the next thing that came was music. I heard the melody and I got the chords and I wrote all that down. It turns out that the, the music, of course, fit the words as you see where this is going. To make this long story really short, the, the experience of being that deep and unlocking creativity that was <laughs> unique for me. I'm not a composer, you know, so to speak. I don't get songs like that all the time. That was a rare instance. But that experience convinced me that what I was doing had value. And I've been leading with that ever since, leading with the power of music as a transformational tool rather than just a quick fix and helping people to understand that willingness to go deep, which is safe, can unlock things that you never knew were there inside you. And uh, living proof of that. So I did. I'd wound up not finding a rope or getting a gun. I I'm here today, still talking, and uh, you know, it's still a challenge, man. I don't want to minimize that. When you find that inner light, 
and many of the guests you've had have said the same thing. Like when you find that inner light and, and you're passionate, then you've got to do it. You just have to. I know. I mean, it's, um, look, it's a, it's an incredibly sad story. Um, it's a deep story. I appreciate you sharing, but it's almost charted your entrepreneurial path, I would say, and much of your mission. You've mentioned this before. I mean, that music, the right music can help you reach inside to find those right responses. Even if you don't quite know what those responses are or what they will turn out to be, in a way, you're sort of living proof of this. I feel in some ways like an evangelist, but also like a amateur scientist. We have enough evidence here to be able to say, if these conditions exist, then these results are possible. And uh, that's a, a huge compression of neuroscience and music therapy research, which is very protocol and clinically driven, and I understand that. But if that's the case, right, then we can use that information to do other things that are way beyond memory care, that are way beyond intervention for distress, depression, and anxiety, like I was experiencing that night, and that take us to places where we can unlock uh, higher levels of consciousness, right, and, and do some other things with creativity and intuition that, uh, thanks to the psychedelic movement, people are starting to realize are possible, and doing those, you know, without drugs, legally with music is also something that we musicians have been doing for a long, long time. Uh, my experience is just one, but there are so many others out there who have had a non-drug-influenced psychedelic experience, which you can get to with your breath. Let's be honest. There's many ways to get into that part of us. And whatever way that you wind up taking is wonderful. The one that I know about is music. So, uh, it's, it's interesting to me to see the world coming alive to the possibilities that exist for transformation and change and this elevation of consciousness that's so important it's crucial right now. Yeah. Can we talk about some of these practical use cases and some examples? Let, let's dive into the weeds here. So, we talked a little bit about, obviously, your experience and the impact of music on mental health, one's mental state, let's say, behavioral health. There's many, many others. Um, I would love to dive into some of these. So, I've bulleted them, uh, short list, but I'll turn it over to you to touch on what you would like to dive into first. But business, the business environment, one's physical health, one's way of thinking, Alzheimer's, war veterans, people with other physical disabilities, the list goes on. But I just want to turn it over to you, Bill. What do you find are the most impactful use cases to highlight here? The ones that are coming alive right now, uh, at least in America, maybe other places, are the ones that involve, uh, well, what I call S-Jedi, but it's basically social justice, actually inclusion. The idea that we are not just separate little islands is a tough one to break down, especially when you start to realize that it's all about relationship. I think one of your recent guests said, you know, to play together creates a relationship. It strengthens the trust. It strengthens the cooperation. You want to do things with your friends that you don't want to do with people you don't. And this shows, I think, that we're not at the tip of the iceberg, but we're somewhere, you know, like we're, we're traversing the whole thing. We're getting down into the weeds about how do we relate to each other in a better way. It's not something that we can do over Zoom, but we try, and that's been a great way of expanding the net. But music, especially when it's shared, allows us to do things that we can't teach each other about ourselves. You know that song that you love that I may not love so much? That's a great way of being able to objectify the experience of our relationship and to put it out there where we can talk about it in a way that is not um, sniping at each other or, you know, dissing each other for what we don't like and don't like. 
And along the way, if we were to listen to that song together, we'd also discover things that science likes to talk about. Mirror neurons are a good one. Watching you as you listen to the music that you love is an experience for me that is ineffable, but science will try to explain it anyway. But it allows me to see into you in a way that I can't see otherwise. And I'm using see, but it's more of a feel. It's like I can experience what you experience. And somehow that experience, which people like to call empathy, goes deeper than empathy. It becomes sort of a brotherhood, like we're talking as guys, right? It, it strengthens the bond that we have. In a way, it opens up a vulnerability that, uh, that you couldn't show me in any other way, Adam, by listening to that music. You work with a lot of businesses hands-on. You do workshops, you do in-person training, you speak, obviously. There's a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast. Um, for those that might be interested in diving deeper into this, what are you seeing on the ground in terms of what's happening in business, specifically what's happening with startups? Yeah, there, there are two ways of, of looking at this. I've been in startup all my life, and as a consultant to Fortune 500, I get to see how it works like on the big screen too. But in the startup level, uh, there's an awful lot of stress. And... Many of us have ways of dealing with that that are external to our business, and oftentimes the people within our business don't really know what we're going through. And um, it may look perfect on the outside, right? But inside, there's turmoil. And so to get to that second level, what I wind up finding is that there are a lot of business owners, from executives to startup, you know, one-person shops, where the stress is so huge that they've... Um, They've been in and out of recovery, let's just say, many times, right? Trying to get a handle on things. And, and uh, using is a big sort of symptom of how we have to deal with stress. Um, sadly, there's been a lot of people that we can't reach that, uh, that take their own lives. They just give up. And um, I was fortunate enough to run a suicide group for a while where we talked about suicide. And, and it, was, it worked out so well that you know, we had to disband the meetup because everybody was doing great. The notion that we can't, that we have to hide these things uh, in order to appear to the world in some other way that the world wants to see uh, is common to a lot of both, you know, high level executives as well as ones. And the startup ones that know this are able to take advantage of it. I want to say raise consciousness again, but I'll, we'll talk about what that means by uh, beginning to be reciprocal in their business. Uh, there's a thing called B Corp out there where corporations who are certified actually qualify as a give back. They, they prove to the world. Yes. Tom Shoes, yes. Patagonia. There you go. Yeah. Yes. So Patagonia mm -hmm. is a good one. And, and this is an important sort of mark of consciousness change that's taken place and a recognition of it. The evolution of consciousness is really our competitive edge these days. And when you realize that and begin to also realize that by willingly changing your consciousness, going vulnerable, figuring out how you can, uh, can really, from within yourself, change, uh, that can change your business too, change the whole enterprise in some cases. It also happens to be healing. So some of the side effects of that, right, is that you get to deal with trauma, you get to distress and de depression. And while those things are still there, they don't like guide you anymore. And you discover that the fuel that those things had for you can be unlocked and used in positive ways instead of just dragging you down or taking you to rehab again or whatever it is that you do. And the symptoms then become less and less in your life in pursuit of this amazing uh, sort of quest for consciousness. You know, listening to you talk about it and the real impacts of music uh, on consciousness in the context of uh, changing the way company is governed, changing a company's mission, really elevating a company beyond 
profit, let's say, I think is a really powerful thing. And I mean, B-certified corps are no joke. And I think their approach to for profit and their approach to business is actually a really healthy one and one that resonates with a lot of consumers. Many times the the barrier to entry is, well, what's my ROI bill? You know, show me an hmm. ROI. And fortunately, the experience of folks, people at WeWork, B Corp certification is helping more and more. I don't want to say this in a pejorative way, but more of us who've been in the 3D world um, understand that there's more than just three dimensions to a business. Not-for-profits kind of get this, but it's, it's not a profit, not-for-profit thing, right? It's more of a give back. It's more of a reciprocal thing. And when your thinking begins to change in that way, then you realize that there are things that you can put on the input side that may not have a measurable on the spreadsheet bottom line ROI, but that do have a return on investment that can be measured in the long term. Um, how your workforce coalesces, for example, um, what's your turnover rate? We used to talk about you know morale and in, in the culture. Um, in fact, whole cultures that have transformed have realized these things in ways that are you know HBR kind of case studies now. And it's more though the cultural transformation, I think, Adam. And what you're getting at here um, is something that we can only really learn through lived experience. And in our world of business, the lived experience that we can bring into business has been very narrow. Thanks to COVID or whatever, that experience is widening a little bit so that we now recognize the value of, let's say, play, which, was, which is a good one that's been in my mind. Uh, but recognizing the value of the relationship that exists uh, within the structure of the business is one of the important ways that things have begun to change. And as you know, as HR is going to do its job, they're going to start tracking metrics based on the relationships in the business, uh, rather than just on the personality types that are in the business. They'll begin to understand how those personality types interact with one another. You talk about that criticism from the other side of folks saying, you know, what's the ROI bill? I mean, you just highlighted two important metrics that I just wanted to mention here before we move on. One is that turnover rate. The other side of the coin here is employee retention. And if you're doing a good job, you've got good, solid employee retention and loyalty. So this intangible thing, seemingly intangible thing, let's say that a listener might be thinking is actually something that's that's quite tangible and measurable from an organizational change perspective. I just want to ask you something before we talk a little bit about your awards and your book. Are, are there new, perhaps emerging and or surprising areas of discovery for you where music is beginning to show a benefit that historically we've not yet understood or pointed to? Yeah, absolutely. Consciousness is like the big one. But underneath consciousness, there are things like, and this has been around for a while, our need to appreciate paradox, the both and that you hear a lot. As happy as I am about that, I'm also a little bit chagrined because these things tend to become buzzwords and lose their meaning. However, being able to understand two sides of a paradox and hold that in one's creative space is the way forward when you want creation. Our government, of course, is probably never going to get that. But the government was designed so that two different sides of an opinion could come together and evolve a third way that didn't exist before the two sides were clear. Composer, who I adore, actually teaches this at a high level in business. His name is Robert Fritz, but in a musical composition, you have your starting point, which is very clear, and you know where you want to go at the end of the music. And how you get there are the melodies, harmonies, and rhythms that help you flow from the starting point to the ending point. This sort of 
it's something like a metaphor works pretty well when you're trying to solve a creative business issue where paradox is clear. And that is like the, the gem. That's the moment, right? It's like being right on the threshold of trauma. That's the moment at which everything can unlock. And instead of welcoming that, the mind shift here is to um, has been to medicate that and put everybody back in their box, right? Instead of going forward with it. So uh, what we want to do is is encourage the shift in safety to bring that paradox out and and move through it instead of just going, oh yeah, both and, right? <laughs> There's so much more behind that we're missing if we paper over it that quickly. Uh, that's just one example. Does that help clarify? Absolutely, and, and thank you for that. Actually, we're, we're talking a lot about consciousness, which sort of tease up my next question about your book. For those that haven't read it, it's called More Than Human, The Value of Cultivating the Human Spirit in Your Organization. The book discusses how spiritual best practices can help us achieve higher levels of productivity as team members and as employees of our organization. You talk a lot about the how in this book, Bill. Can you share some takeaways for those that haven't yet read it? I'm a how guy. I, and with respect for Simon Sinek, I get why, right? Why is is the passion, the fuel that makes this happen? But passion alone is not going to be enough. I've seen some very passionate musicians who are unlistenable, <laughs> right? And it's not because they aren't passionate. It's because they're, they need to focus that, coalesce that passion into something that reaches me. Maybe they reach other people. I'm just being personally observant here. But the how of spirituality, let's use the word, is really critical. And by spirituality, I mean everything that science doesn't have metrics for yet. Things like inspiration, creativity, a relationship. You know, science can tell us by connecting the dots to metrical measurements on the why of relationship. But how does that happen fundamentally? So I'm really interested in how to connect these non-scientific measurements. Some might call them human attributes in ways that are uh, that are practical and that there, so that there's sort of a program, if you will, a protocol. Heavens to Betsy, this is just not me. I don't do programs and protocols. But so that people will know how to use their spiritual attributes well in organizations. Uh, the obvious thing we mentioned earlier is the toxic boss, who has a lot of attributes, good, bad, or otherwise. A lot of those are spiritual, right? They may not be the best practice spiritual attributes, but you know, uh, abusing people to get what you want what do we call that? Like narcissistic personality disorder or something like uh, <laughs> it can work, but does it work well? Well, I mean, depending on your organization, right? But is there a better way? Possibly for a lot of us, we don't respond well to abuse. So <laughs> finding the, per the spiritual attributes or the human attributes, I'll go with whichever one you want, doesn't matter, that work and applying those in an organization with some skill is the point of more than human. Folks who haven't read it yet can grab that book on Amazon. In 2014, you were recognized by the National Council for Behavioral Health with an award of excellence, the industry equivalent of winning an Oscar. <laughs> important for folks to know that because you know most listeners won't be familiar with how important this award is. In your experience, was winning this award meaningful? How do you feel about it? The award was so meaningful because I got to bring it right back and honor my mother who for years taught neurodivergent kids before we had a term for it to play the piano, to focus, to do well in school. It's like this art of making music helps you as a child develop in ways that uh, you, you can't develop in any other way. Uh, my college piano professor called my mom and said, how do you do that? And mom explained, and uh, my college professor's kids who are both musicians are now professional musicians at the very highest levels doing amazing things thanks to this approach. 
So it all goes back to the, that first lesson, right? At three years old. And, you know, it was kind of nice to be there and the recognition and all that, but it, it doesn't really change what I do, Adam. It's just like, oh, yeah, cool. That happened. People understand. I mean, I think it's validation that the work you're doing is really valuable and really meaningful. So congrats on that. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you before we wrap up here about some of your favorite types of music, your favorite musicians, favorite bands of yours. Robert Fritz aside. I'm really loving hip hop these days. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's such a great way to uh, release anger and safety. And when you do that, you get the feeling of this beauty and this power that is in hip hop that's way beyond the lyrics. So big into that. I've been leading a sing along for the last 18 months. We get together and sing outdoors, public sing along on Meetup once a month. And a lot of the favorite music that I have from my own uh, 60s, 70s, 80s growing up period is part of that. Too many bands to name right now, but uh, anybody who gets into that. And, I, and I'm learning now, of course, 90s, the early 20s. It's like this, this whole music thing is getting into me in a way that is just beautiful. Favorite musicians, though, you can get two of them together on the same album called The Goat Rodeo, Yo-Yo Ma and Chris Teeley. So there's the world's most amazing cellist and the world's mm-hmm. most amazing mandolin player. Strangely enough, I'm also incredibly awed by Bella Fleck, who's a banjo, banjo player. Sure. Yes. Um, you know, this is I'm a pianist, right? I'd love to hear piano players too, and I can listen to them all day long. But these people are ones who are sort of leading the charge away from the way that music used to be played. And, and I love to give concerts in places that you wouldn't normally expect a grand piano and a guy in a tuxedo, right? So... It speaks to me to watch these cats do what they do. Well, Bella Fleck was one compact disc in high school that I went back to, their debut album, Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, I think it's self-titled um, with Victor Wooten on bass. It was magic. And he can play anything. I mean, seriously, anything. You know, microtonal stuff and Bach and just, oh, blows me away. Mandolin players, David Grisman comes to mind. Oh, dude. Yeah, yeah. I was in Bay Area. I could have gone and heard David Grisman, right? As a kid. And I didn't know he was there. He's so incredible. Yeah. So there's Dogwood, there's Dog Music, there's a number of them. Dog, D A W G. Grisman's got a live album for those that are interested with Stefan Grappelli, who's since passed, I believe. He's, he's a violinist. The two of them are live somewhere. I don't know where the venue is, but. He was good friends with Jerry Garcia, and they played yes. like a little living room concert together that got recorded on video. So that's right. On YouTube. All those deadheads listening know what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm tipping my jam band love cards right now. In any case, Bill, congrats, man, on all your success. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for being here. Musimorphic, for those that want to learn more about what you're doing, where can they find you? So, uh, musimorphic.com, obviously, it's a made-up word. We created it, so you're going to have to figure out how to spell it. You can also Google Bill Protzman. You'll find me that way. You'll find me all over the place. Lots of podcasting. I've got some original albums out there on Spotify. They're carried by everybody, I think. So, I'm pretty ubiquitous. Once you know how to spell it, you'll find me easily. And let's not forget More Than Human, the book, The Value of Cultivating the Human Spirit in Your Organization. Find that on Amazon. Bill, amazing man. Thank you again. Thank you, brother. It's been a pleasure, Adam. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. 
Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Electricast.